people say, um, I'm coming to a talk conference like this, saying, well, do you need PowerPoint? I'm like, I, do, I don't dare risk it, seriously. Um, <laughs> AV is enough of a challenge, I will just um, uh, stick with talking. Let me pray as we begin. Merciful Father, once again, we thank you. We thank you for your presence with us by your spirit. We thank you for your word spoken to us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ living among us as one of us. And we want our hearts and so our lives to be shaped by you and therefore by Jesus the Son and by the presence of the indwelling Spirit. And we ask now that as we reflect in this final session on uh, a great competitor, uh, you would give us wisdom and insight and thoughtfulness to be able to understand uh, the likely impact of the technologies with which we're surrounded so that we may learn to live more wisely in the world in which you've placed us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this session by reading through and commenting on, as I go, what I have come to believe is the most important one, two, three, four, five paragraphs yet written on our contemporary cultural malaise. It comes from Neil Postman's book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, which was written in 1985. Um, he was worried about television. Hmm. If only he knew. Let me read this, and I'll make reference to a few, um, and spell out a few things in more detail that he's talking about um, as I do so. He begins, we were keeping our eye on 1984. Who knows what he's talking about? It's George Orwell's dystopian novel written in 1948, in which he um, prophesied a terrible, tyrannical oppression. Big Brother is watching you. From the outside would come suppression of all that is good and beautiful in human life. We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came, the year before he wrote this, and the reality didn't, or the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, and of course it had happened in the East, in Russia, in Eastern Europe, and so on. We, at least, had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. And so America celebrated in the 80s, in the Reagan years, and, and the years that followed. We've achieved, we've retained our freedom. The Orwellian vision of the external oppression of 1984 has not come to pass. Quote, but we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. That was written in the 30s, I think, 1934. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, 
Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. If you were at high school in England in the 90s, you probably had to read both books, and both were set forth as dystopian visions of the future, and carelessly, often, they were summarized under the same kind of headings. Uh, this is how society ought not to work, and so on. What we really need is our freedom, etc., etc., etc. But that's wrong, because there are stark differences between them. Postman continues, Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother, who's the, the great political tyrant in the sky, is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he, Huxley, saw it, people will come to love their oppression to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. You see where he's going? It's, it's astonishing to me that he wrote this in 1985. He continues, what Orwell feared in 1984 were those who would ban books. That came to reality in many parts of the world. Not in America, really, I mean, bits, bits and pieces, but not seriously. Nobody banned that many books in America. What Huxley feared was that there'd be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. <clears throat> Oops. Huxley feared those who would deprive us of information. Sorry. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley, brave new world, feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell, 1984, feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared that we would become a trivial culture, preoccupied with some equivalent of, <laughs> and I love this phrase, the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. Now, I need to explain what those things are. Um, in Huxley's novel, uh, Brave New World, he imagines a number of different things that um, society contains, that people do to entertain them. The feelies are a bit like the movies, but they're kind of sensory as well. So you hold on to these two sort of metal handles uh, on the, the arms of your seat, and they transmit to you the feelings that correspond to the movie. Um, the orgy-porgy, I forget what that is, that's some kind of like nationalistic kind of... Um, a ceremony of some kind, I forget the details. And the centrifugal bumble puppy. <laughs> this is like the organized games for the kids, where basically there's this ball and you throw it up into the air into this thing and it lands in this chute, I think it's right, and then the chute, the thing spins around, and it flies out somewhere else and you've got to catch it and then throw it back in again. It's the organized games. So what, what Huxley depicts is a, is a, um, a world in which um, it's not that we have become captive, held prisoner by somebody who is fixing our gaze on the one thing that we're allowed to think about and erasing everything else, what's going to happen instead is that we ourselves will devise trivial entertainments. The feelies. Uh, substitutes for meaningful ritual, like worship, 
that bring us together, but to celebrate things that don't matter very much, the orgy-porgy. And organized games for kids to replace, kick them out the back door, and go and explore and do things. Remember that? You used to do that? Oh, we don't dare do that anymore. It's far too dangerous. No, it's not far too dangerous. It's just the milk carton phenomenon. Remember that? There, there have always tragically been dangers for children. Uh, most uh, viscerally, perhaps, the thought that your children might be taken. If, you, if I kick them out the back door to go and play, somebody might abduct them. That's always been a danger. What happened in, I think, the 80s or the 90s is that um, uh, people started to put photographs of abducted children on the side of milk cartons so that we could all look out for them. So we all became terrified that if we kick our kids out the back door to go and play, just to go and discover the world, um, they'd be abducted. Abduction rates didn't go up. We became captive to our fears. Now, for the tragic situation in which a tiny number of families and children found themselves in, of course, this is not to trivialize that, but can you see what's happened? It's not that somebody is oppressing us, it's that we have been captured by displaced and misplaced desires. As Huxley, Huxley remarked in Brave New World, the civil, civil libertarians and rationalists who are ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. We were ready to fight against a tyrant from outside, and we simply forgot or never knew that the greatest tyranny could come from within, from our own failure to guard our hearts rightly, so that we could become captive to... <laughs> the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy, or Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can see where we're going. In 1984, Huxley added, people are controlled by inflicting pain. Remember the scene with um, Winston Smith? Have you seen the film version of 1984 and the rat cage? Horrible. The infliction of fear and pain in 1984. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. We are controlled by the infliction of pleasure. And worse still, we inflict it on ourselves. We have entered a world in which it is possible through technologies to access immediate, short-term cotton candy activities. Which, and we inflict pleasure on ourselves and we allow ourselves thereby to be controlled and taken away from, tyrannized by that which we love. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. Can you see how, I mean, this is, you are what you love. Yeah, but I love whatever it is. Of course you do. This book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. This final talk, the Lord being my helper, is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, is right. That we are being ruined by what we find pleasurable, 
pleasures that we inflict upon ourselves. And Postman can scarcely have imagined the horrors that lay around the corner. He and Huxley before him, they, could, they couldn't really imagine how we would develop, what would the technologies be that um, made us feel kind of pleasurable? And, and so maybe they'd be pharmaceutical, you know, injections, or maybe there'd be some, some kind of variant of um, machines that were then available, hence the feelies or the centrifugal bumble puppy, these kind of trivial pursuits. So it's a little bit, it's like reading a prophecy from a bygone age, which is what it is. The, the, the dystopian reality that he saw was necessarily couched in the terms available to him. Scarcely did he realize that what would happen is you'd have this thing, which you paid for. <laughs> it's just hilarious. You couldn't write the script on this. And what happens is that um, the best neuroscientists and the best psychologists and the best computer scientists in the world have come together to create things that happen on this screen whereby what you do is this, swipe flicking with your thumb, and your own brain dispenses little micro droplets of a hormone, dopamine, which makes you feel good. And we love it. I can't go to the bathroom <laughs> without taking... Don't ever borrow anybody's mobile phone, by the way. I mean... <laughs> let the reader understand. Um, <laughs> we are controlled by our love for this trivial immediately short-term gratifying sensation that we can't, we don't even know why we like it. I mean specifically um, examples of technologies that are embedded in um, social media like infinite scrolling. You know the inventor of infinite scrolling um, was self-consciously trying to find a way of um, presenting the material on, let's say, a Facebook page, which would make you feel like you'd never got to the end of it. If you scroll down a page and you get to the footer, you feel like, okay, uh -huh. now I need a reason to continue. You now need no reason to continue. HTML5, infinite scrolling. As a Raskin, who's the inventor, apologized several years later for what he'd done because what they were trying to do was to hack your heart, in Christian terms, hack your neuropsychology or neurobiology in conventional psychological terms, to get you to dispense more of the little chemical to yourself. It's the same with the three dots. You know when you're on Facebook? I hope you don't, but let's imagine you do, just for the sake of argument, and you write something, and then you have that little thing that pops up that says, somebody else is typing a reply. Or you've got just the three dots and you can't look away. Because what's, technically what's happening is the, um, the, the app is tapping into the human proclivity to want future reward, and the promise of a possible, uncertain, but likely positive future reward, it's like those game shows where, do you want to stop now or double your money with one more question? You, you need to like, oh, 
gone. I'll do it. You know, because um, the, the, the promise of possible future reward is so attractive, except with this thing. It's not that you'll lose what you've already got if you, if you carry on and it doesn't work. Because, hey, if you scroll down and there's a negative comment, it doesn't matter. You can just unlike that, and then you can just wait for the next one. Just keep going. All of the technical features of modern social media applications and websites are specifically designed to do precisely what Huxley prophesied, precisely what Neil Postman warned about 35 years ago, in order to keep you scrolling to keep the companies afloat by increasing advertising, uh, advertising revenue. We are all suckers for trivia. And the way it works is not via the normative perspective. You, you are not being taught to keep viewing adverts. Keep. What's happening is the two other paths to your heart, the two other elements of the triad are here determinative. Habits, embodied practices, the wake, uh, groan, stretch, yawn, reach over, grope, blindly, grab, thumbprint, blink, that the habit and the relational quality of the interaction, the fact that you are actually in relationship, albeit a highly distorted relationship with something, it's the situational and existential perspectives in frames terminology, or in our terminology, it's the habits, and it's the relationships with persons that are shaping us, and they're ruining us. And my purpose in the remainder of our time today is to try and scare the wits out of you so that you will realize that in order to, to put into place any of the practical measures that I was gesturing towards in the previous session, you will certainly have to get this one under control. You'll have to do something. And if you're a mum and you have teenage kids, um, it's time you started yesterday already. Um, but now, before we um, continue with the rant, and I intend to rant for uh, several minutes, um, I, I want to just highlight one um, theoretical point, which will give you a bunch more books to read. You're welcome. And, and also um, highlight the irony of the situation we're in. Um, the underlying point at the philosophical level here could be framed like this. The medium through which we receive content is not neutral. This picks up the, the trail laid by a couple of other writers. Um, Marshall McLuhan, you may have come across him. More recently, Ken Myers, a Mars Hill uh, podcast, um, uh, Mars Hill Audio. Um, both of those guys, uh, Marshall McLuhan I think is dead, Ken Myers certainly isn't. Um, I've highlighted in different ways, and Marshall McLuhan even has a, even has a book by this title, um, The Medium is the Message. Uh, actually, I think he, he's got a slight pun in the title, but the, the gist of it is, the medium through which we consume content itself has a substantive effect on us. In other words, reading something on Kindle, or reading something on Facebook, or reading something in one of these, a B00K, there's a book, 
that's, those are different experiences because the medium itself has a substantive effect on the experience that you're engaged in. It's, it's ironic, this is the, the, the not very hilarious point. Um, to the extent that we're presuppositionalists, which we should be, that is to say we're convinced that there is no neutrality anywhere in the world. There's no ethical neutrality. There is no epistemic neutrality. Um, everything, in the end, is either uh, good or evil. Um, you don't give your kids a neutral education and then leave them to decide whether to follow Jesus for yourself, for themselves. Rather, what you recognize is that uh, every subject is to be brought under the Lordship of Christ. There's no neutral science or neutral history. Everything is to be taught from a Christian perspective. So we are ideological presuppositionalists, but we are not media presuppositionalists because we act as though Facebook is a neutral medium in and through which we may embrace the content that matters to us. It's just a tool, and it can be used for good or ill. And that, I, won't, I submit to you that is simply not true. But I guarantee, if you start saying to some, if you get kind of, if I manage to persuade anybody and you go to church tomorrow, wherever your church is, and you start saying, you know, social media is really, really dangerous, I guarantee I would put money on it that somebody will say, well, no, it's just a tool. It's not a tool. There are no, it's just a tool. In the, there's nothing in the universe that's neutral, not even the media through which we receive content. We've got to dispense with the distinction between form, medium, on the one hand, and content on the other, and recognize that the medium itself conveys something to us. The, the thing is, it just doesn't convey it cognitively. It conveys it habitually, and it conveys it relationally. So Ken Myers, All God's Children and Blue Suede Shoes. Marshall, Marshall McLuhan, the, the, the pun in the title is, the medium is the massage. Our minds are being massaged. Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. That's the, those are three waypoints along that well worth traveling road. Right, um, rant begins. Um, I've already highlighted that um, social media applications are deliberately designed to be addictive. Postman saw this even thinking about television back in the 80s. Literally, God only knows what he would have thought if he, had, if he could view the dystopian horror of our modern age. It used to make me think this is a bit odd when you'd see kids. We used to talk about kids having square eyes. You ever use that phrase? No, English phrase, obviously. Sorry about that. And what we're referring to is kids who like can't just can't look away from the TV. Perform an experiment on a who's got like a kid under the age of five. You might, or you borrow one from somebody else. In fact, it's best to borrow one because you don't want to do this on your own children. Um, give them a game to play, like and play a game with them, and um, uh, and and then you know leave them with other kids to play, and then turn the TV on and watch the kid. And the swivel eyes will go, guarantee it. Um, but you can't look away, because all of the neutral technological features, ha-ha, are deliberately designed to keep you hooked. I'm not going to belabor the um, biological and neurobiological details. You can read about them. It's, been, it's now a commonplace. But let me just point out, um, nobody actually knows 
Nobody has any idea what happens to human beings who are raised from the age of 8, 10, 12, 15, who spend the next 40 or 50 years experiencing most of their relationships through online social media apps on a six-inch screen. Nobody knows because we haven't been doing it for long enough. Like YouTube's only been around since whenever it was. The iPhone was invented in 2007. We've only been doing this for 15 years. It just looks like so far the, 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 temp, the provisional results that have come in don't look good. But we have no idea what a 60-year-old looks like who has had their experiences of life mediated in this way through this very definitely non-neutral medium. Other effects, and this is a, uh, a smattering of um, well-documented, undeniable, um, this is not my opinion, this is just what the results of the research seems to say. Um, it's other people's opinion and they seem to know what they're talking about. This is what happens when it's your brain on Facebook. Um, it diminishes the enjoyment of normal relationships and it displaces normal habits. Like, what did you used to do before when you woke up in the morning? You, you did the yawn, stretch, roll over, grope blindly, scroll, and an hour goes past. What did you used to do? Well, you used to do something with that hour. Maybe it involved like a real physical cup of coffee with your actual wife. Speaking of actual wives, um, <laughs> when we talk about the fact that the, um, it's not just the content of social media that's the problem, it's the medium, remember the content has the potential to be bad as well. Um, and if you want to know what the uh, content is, then you should look at the statistics. An, an alien visiting Earth from outer space who discovered that we've got this thing called the internet and wanted to know what it was for would be, would they just take a look at what internet is used for? Uh, and it turns out that the internet is used basically for one thing. 25% of all searches, 30% of all video, and 35% of all downloads online are pornography. To a first approximation, that's what it's for. Yeah, it's used for some other things as well, but there is no single function that the internet as a whole, never mind social media in particular, is used for that has a greater market share than that. So an alien writing a report, McKinsey's from Mars, whatever, on these strange humans and what they do, would say, yeah, they've devised this system which they use for viewing mostly video images of other people enjoying or not enjoying, because it's basically a form of sexual abuse, sexual intimacy. That's what it's for. In fact, some analysts, financial analysts, think the internet would never have got off the ground in the first place if it weren't for the revenue that pornography generated. Nobody knows how much money it generates. Probably tens of billions a year. And that money's coming from somebody. No, it's not coming from somebody, it's coming from lots of people. Um, Jonathan Edwards, again, hat tip to America. Um, uh, he had a, a problem in the early 18th century uh, with a bunch of young lads in his congregation in Northampton who had got hold of um, a gynecological manual, a midwife's manual, and were 
teasing some of the girls in the community by showing them the pictures or mocking them about what they'd seen in some of the pictures. He thought that was a serious pastoral issue, and he was right. It was right. It actually caused a real ruckus in his church. Read George Marsden's biography of Edwards and see what ruckus it caused in his church. What would America's greatest theologian think if he knew that statistically um, more than 90% of men view pornography online habitually? probably uh, slightly fewer women. That's the base rate in the population as a whole. You might think, well, churches, we're not so prone to this. This isn't such a big deal in churches. Really? Um, I've got news for you. The data suggests otherwise. If you ask Christians whether they view pornography, they, they report it at a lower rate than the rest of the population quite a lot lower rate and you can easily understand why because um, if you ask unbelieving university students whether you believe porn and they think uh, whether they view porn and they think everybody else does and they're more they're kind of likely to admit that they do but Christians there's a kind of social cost to that so Christians will tend to lie about it and so they don't so report self-reported surveys of porn use suggest a lower rate of usage among Christians but that's not the only way to find out what Christians do on the internet you can correlate uh, porn subscriptions with church attendance geographically by county. And so you can just plot a chart of porn subscription rates by church attendance rates, and it turns out there's a positive correlation. It turns out that Christians, in other words, view pornography at a higher rate than people in the main bulk of society. Now, it doesn't tell us what their names are, doesn't tell us how many people here do, but it does tell us that we shouldn't be naive about the possibility. <laughs> the research is really granular. It turns out that subscription rates drop on Sundays in those counties where church attendance is high. Apparently Christians, people like us, feel sufficiently guilty, rightly, about porn usage that we don't go straight home after church and sign up, but we more than make up for it between us the rest of the week. We outstrip unbelievers in our consumption of pornographic material. Where do we get it from? We get it from this thing that is designed to capture us, and it's done really rather well. well that is probably the most um, viscerally appalling manifestation of the relational damage that the internet and social media is capable of doing. Um, but there are plenty of other examples. Have you seen that advert recently? I just saw this the other day. Um, it's, I think it's a, a young woman, Addison Ray, who I think is what is called an influencer. Yes, she's an influencer. Think, she influences, she's a TikTok personality, apparently. It's a Samsung advert. Have you seen the thing? And it's the Addison Ray's dinner party advert. Hands up if you've seen this advert. Okay, so basically what happens, it's, it's the, the caption says, Addison Ray's dinner party. Now, she's a TikTok influencer, so what's happening at her dinner party? Well, everyone is um, sitting around on this beautiful long table in this beautiful big house on their mobile phones, and all you can hear is like... And Addison Ray's sitting at the head of the table, and she's like looking around like this. And it's just a horrifying moment, because it's as though she realizes something is wrong. With a dinner party at which everyone is just texting, or surfing, or sharing, or liking, or whatever it is they're doing. And so what does she do? <laughs> she gets her phone, and she says, 
I think I can't forget the words, but it's basically, hey Google, what's this song? And she goes, mm-mm-mm-mm. And whatever the app is recognizes that it's um, Backstreet Boys, everybody from 1999 or whenever it was. And everyone gets up and starts dancing. And then one of the girls sort of speaks into her little wristwatch and says, hey Google, backyard lights on. And they all start sort of dancing like this. It's like a dinner party without conversation. A dinner party, the only content of which is um, the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy. And she's an influencer. Well, of course she is. And you can tell. Uh, you're, there's hell on steroids right there. And the, the weird thing, well, there's lots of weird things, that's an advertisement for mobile phones. The people who make mobile phones think this is the thing that will make them appeal to people. You, you, you create an advertisement which embodies the reality that you think your customers will want to aspire to. This is Samsung. I don't know how many millions of dollars that advert has cost them to make and to, to screen. They must know that this is what will appeal to people, and they're absolutely right. So, somewhere along the line, the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and the centrifugal bumble puppy have diminished our desire for and our enjoyment of just the normal relationships that God has given us, the actual human being sitting across the table from you in the coffee shop, by whom you could be formed if you just got off Instagram for five minutes. There are plenty of other problems that have been uh, documented with um, these technologies. I'll, I'll just go through a few. Um, a good deal of the um, obesity epidemic in America and the West generally is apparently um, attributable both to the displacement of normal healthy exercise by just doing stuff online, and also by what some analysts call food porn, which is to say the kind of pictures of food which, make, which present a kind of artificially attractive vision of what that has to offer. If you, <laughs> this has often been done, isn't it? You remember the, the experiment that somebody did ages ago where what they did was they got, I think it was a can of Coke and a McDonald's hamburger, and they basically had the Coke and the hamburger here, and then they had the actual ingredients here. Said, would you like to eat these? This amount of sugar this high, and a little block of fat, <laughs> and a very, very, very small piece of steak, and a little kind of teaspoon of, you know, well, somehow um, we are conned by the presentation into thinking that this is attractive. I don't know, I have hamburgers sometimes. We all had donuts at coffee time, you know. But you can see how what happens with professional photography in that kind of social media environment intensifies the desire for that food. It's so trivial, but it's um, fairly significant. Um, distraction. Um, I told you the story about my mobile phone and the little wooden stand I made in the other side of the room. It's profoundly helpful because it turns out there's no such thing as multitasking. Um, lots of people say, I'm multitasking. So yeah, and you're smiling at each other because you've had this conversation already. Um, I can check my email whilst texting. No, no, you, what you can't do is multitask. The human brain cannot do two 
what are called type two tasks at the same time. Tasks that require concentration, you can't do. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. You might be able to walk and have a conversation at the same time. You might be able to drive and have a conversation at the same time, but you can't negotiate a really complicated turning circle or motorway or interstate exit and talk at the same time because both require your concentration. So you stop the conversation in order to undertake the maneuver safely. But what happens when you're trying to do multiple things at the same time, watching a movie, um, Facebook surfing, or worse, at work, working on this, checking my email, answering a text, you're doing rapid task switching. And every time you switch tasks, there is a cognitive cost, which increases the load on your brain. I forget the name of which bit it is, but basically it overloads you, makes you feel exhausted, which is why you feel exhausted. Um, it stops you sleeping so well, both because it stimulates your brain when it ought to be shutting down in the evening, because I'm just going to check my phone one more time. I'm not going to ask you to put your hands up if you do that. Don't embarrass anybody. And also because of the blue light that um, interrupts your circadian rhythm, so you can't get to sleep even when you do try. And lack of sleep, by the way, um, has a cavalcade of ruinous health effects. Like just um, Andrew Walker, why we sleep. No, no, sorry, Matthew Walker, why we sleep. Uh, even if 10% of the stuff in that book is right, it's horrifying to think that most of us never get enough of it. And finally, I never even realized this. You know those emojis? About like the smiley, grumpy face, vomit, you know, head explode, all those things, right? And they're all getting more sophisticated, aren't they? And, and, and young people know what they all mean. I've no idea what they mean. I don't want to send one in to anybody in case it's rude. You know, I send a kind of head exploding one to a parishioner or something and they leave the church because they think I've insulted them. I don't know whether that's the right thing to do. Um, I wouldn't want anybody to do that. Um, but young people know what they mean. Young people, use, young people have entire conversations made up of emojis, don't they? Because they know what they mean. Well, I, I never realized this until recently. People have done research on the effects of that on people's ability to communicate with each other. It turns out that you can measure the negative impact that using emojis has on people's ability to communicate complex, subtle, nuanced emotions in actual words. To explain how you feel to somebody turns out to be quite difficult to do. Those of you who are married know this. Probably the wives especially. Sometimes it's difficult to explain ex exactly how you feel about something. And the reason is it takes practice. And emojis are replacing the practice that we normally have at learning to express our feelings to each other in a way which, if we could, would deepen and intensify and enrich our relationships. We are learning not to be able to communicate, and we're doing it by communicating. What else is wrong with social media? Well, have you ever had a constructive discussion? Thank you, I rest my case. It, social media has the capacity to turn even normally rational people into argumentative, uh, uh, sarcastic, ignorant, uh, shoot from the hip, What's the, what's the phrase? Um, clickbait artists. I've had, I've, that, that's actually the reason why I stopped using social media a number of years ago for anything to do with religion, politics, or um, 
uh, anything ideological, basically. And I now, I, then I thought, well, I'll use it for posting pictures of meat that I've smoked. And I now basically don't even bother to do that. I just basically, I have social media basically because if somebody joins the church, I need to be able to find out if they're going to cause trouble before they join. And I, so I have a social media account, and I never unfriend anybody because they're the people you want to watch for, right? But you can't have a constructive conversation because something happens in the mind and the heart of normally reasonable people when they disagree in Facebook comments. YouTube comments are the worst. If you're going to have a YouTube channel at your church, turn the comments off. Um, ideological bubbles, because however outlandish and ridiculous your views, you can find 78 people somewhere in the world that will agree with you. And you never have to be challenged by the actual human beings you live around because you just choose to surround yourself with people exactly like you. And then the, the final ruinous thing, it's instant and global and permanent. As the saying goes, you can't delete anything from the internet, as countless celebrities have found to their cost. So here's a great idea. Um, imagine saying this to the Apostle James. He's just written that bit in um, James chapter 3 about the tongue. The tongue is a fire. Tongues the rudder that steers the ship, so on and so forth. We've got an idea, James. What we'll do is we'll put in the hands of every teenage boy in the world and all the girls a device which allows them to speak immediately and ineradicably to anybody everywhere and to say whatever they feel with zero delay and zero possibility of retraction. What do you think, James? <laughs> he'd do one of those head exploding emojis, right? Because he'd be like, you must, that is the stupidest idea in the world. And yet somehow Christians seem to think it's a great way of engaging the culture. Isn't this interesting? What, what, what are the cultural threats that imperil America? If I'd come yesterday and I'd said, what are the cultural threats that imperil America? You'd have, you'd have said some combination of wokeness, um, uh, progressive um, liberalism, um, Bidenomics, wouldn't you? And so one of the things that Christians have learned to do is to fight back against the culture using social media. Correct? Has it occurred to you that if the battle is not out there, or at least not simply out there, if the battle is in here, what we're actually doing is we're making the problem worse. Imagine, let me illustrate, and this is a, a somewhat grotesque illustration, but it was inspired by the public health situation in San Francisco. Imagine that um, somebody has come, you live in San Francisco, okay, and somebody has come to your driveway outside the front of your house, and they've written all kinds of obscene and blasphemous things all over your drive and daubed all over the front of your house using human excrement. Sorry. But it makes the point. Imagine they've done that. Even you'd be just like horrified. And, and it's actually the sort of thing that's been done, not necessarily blasphemous, but people have done that in San Francisco, apparently, because there's no shortage of the stuff around. And you're like, well, I'm not having this. This is blasphemous. This is insulting to Jesus. So you get a big pile of human excrement and you write all over your house, Jesus is Lord. And you're standing against the culture because you're proclaiming the Lordship of Christ. And meanwhile, the devil is like laughing because what he's managed to do is to get you to spread human excrement all over your house. He doesn't care what it says. He just wants poop everywhere. What if the devil 
really doesn't care who gets into the White House as long as he can get all the Christians tearing their own lives apart by living them through a medium which is not neutral, which will tear us apart, tear us away from the things that actually have the capacity to heal this busted society. What will heal this society? It's communities of people, actual human beings, who are in relationship with each other, who, whose habits cultivate in them maturity in Christ, and who, of course, finally, cognitively, know the truth about Christ and are able to live it out because they're not dragged away by the greatest peril of our age. And that, I submit to you, is what social media actually is. It is seven minutes past 11, and I think we want to have some time for Q&A. Um, before we go to that, because I don't know whether we'll have, uh, I'll have an opportunity at the end of that maybe, but I want to just take the opportunity now to thank you again, brother, Pastor Hale, for the invitation to be here. Thank you to the session for agreeing to this crazy idea, and, and uh, thank you all for being here, and um, I've really enjoyed the short time we've had to get to know some of you and talk with you. I hope it's been helpful for you. We have some Q&A time, um, which I hope may be helpful. Uh, to use however Pastor Hale wants, but... Thank you for your attentiveness.